I hope you have your Bibles with you and that you'll turn in them to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You'll find that on page 938 in the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. through 5. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is the word of our Lord. Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The time of the year when we consider and celebrate the truths that we love to remember at Christmas. Or is it Easter? Actually, it's both, isn't it? Did you know, and I said it a little bit a few minutes ago, that without Easter, Christmas would mean nothing at all. There'd be no point to the presents, the Christmas carols, the feasts, the special times of worship and fellowship with the church if it weren't for what happened at Easter. I would invite you to take a look at the lyrics from my favorite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and see if you see any Easter themes in it. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Here's the second stanza. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And then the last, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Well, we could sing that today, couldn't we? So there you have it. Christmas at Easter. Easter themes of resurrection and salvation and the call of the nations in a Christmas carol. Put a pin in that thought and turn your attention to Romans chapter 1. Looking at these first five verses of Romans 1, it's no wonder that a uh, commentator and a new friend of all of ours who were here at Doxa just a few weeks ago, Andy Nacelli, calls it the greatest letter ever written. Simply cannot fit all of what ought to be said about even this short handful of verses into one sermon. Maybe someday I'll, I'll preach through Romans slowly and systematically, but today on this Resurrection Sunday, I just want to point our attention to some truths about the resurrection that this glorious portion of a sentence that Paul wrote teaches us. But as we always do here at Redeemer Bible Church, let's get a brief lay of the land, so to speak, before we jump in. These words in Romans chapter 1 come at the very beginning of the Apostle Paul's letter to the 
Romans. Dead giveaway when you see it right there on the page in front of you. It's a dense theological treatise in which Paul is explaining the glorious truths of the gospel. And on one hand, you could say that it is a letter containing the basics of the Christian faith that every believer, new and old, needs to know well. But on the other hand, it is such a dense and detailed book that, quite frankly, I am at the moment too intimidated to start an exposition of it anytime soon. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, said something about a pastor shouldn't preach through Romans until he's been in ministry for 25 years or something like that. Another important context item that we need to see here is that the point that Paul is making in the opening handful of verses is a point that he's going to make again. He's going to repeat it throughout this letter, including at the very end. I would invite you to turn just a few pages to the very end of the letter. Romans chapter 16. You'll find that on page 951 if you're using the Bibles in the chairs. Romans 16. And look starting at verse 25 and see if it sounds familiar at all to the first five verses that we already read. Now to him who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You see how similar those are? If you were to sort of flip back and forth with your left and right hand maybe and just check verses 1 through 5 and then check verses 25 through 27 of Romans 16, you'd see a lot of similar or same words. And so these opening verses contain a theme that he's going to repeat more than once and even bookend the letter with. And so we see from this that at the heart of everything that Paul wants his readers to understand is that at the center of God's revelation to his people is the good news that Jesus Christ was promised, came to save his people, and accomplished that work for the good of all peoples and the glory of God. And so when we read these first five verses of this great letter, we must not think of it as simply an opening address to his readers, a mere formality, if you will, before he gets to what he really wants to talk about. Rather, these opening words are exactly what Paul wants to talk about, and indeed exactly what God wants us as the readers of this passage and the hearers of it preached to learn and believe. Now, as we focus in on these words for the next several minutes together, I see three truths in three main sections of this passage. The first one you find in verses 1 through 3, where we see that the gospel of Christ was promised in Old Testament Scripture. He says in these opening verses that he's been set apart for the gospel of God and that that gospel is at the very beginning of verse 3, concerning God's Son. So the gospel is about Jesus. And evidently, Paul believes that the gospel was present in the Old Testament Scriptures because he says that the gospel of God was promised, verse 2, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament there. 
So if you're one of those people who thinks that the Old Testament is vastly different from the New Testament, well, in one sense that's true, but really it's not. The gospel, what people tend to think of as a strictly New Testament thing, is actually very much an Old Testament thing. That's number one. The gospel of Christ was promised in Old Testament scripture. The third truth in the end of verse 3 into verse 4 is that Jesus was proven to be the Christ at his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the messianic fulfillment of the Davidic kingly line as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And that fact was proven at the resurrection. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. That fact that Jesus was the Son of God was declared at his resurrection. It wasn't made to be true at the resurrection. It was true already, and the resurrection proved it when he was raised. Truth number three, in verse five, the grace of the risen Christ calls sinners to salvation through him. What Paul is saying in verse five is that faith in Christ is actually an act of obedience to the authoritative call to salvation. Perhaps you noted he says that as well at the very end in Romans 16 in the passage that we read a moment ago. So when someone is saved, when someone repents of sin and believes on Christ for forgiveness and restoration to God, it's actually an act of obedience to the call extended to the world to trust in Christ. Now, Paul is also saying here in this final verse of our text today that salvation is for the sake of two things. And these are massive concepts. First of all, for the sake of the spread of his name to the nations at the end of verse 5. And secondly, for the sake of the fame of his name so that he, that is Jesus, might be glorified. Now, I kind of like those three-part division that I've, that I've come up with, but we could do it this way too. The center of the passage, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection of the dead. That's the point. Then the cause of that center of the passage is the gospel that was promised beforehand concerning his Son. And then the consequence of that center of the passage being, we therefore have received grace to go for the sake of his name. So those are two options of a three-way division of this passage And I share them so that we can get a sense of the context and how this passage is laid out before us. But what I would like to do for the remainder of our time in this sermon today is to look at this passage in relation to the doctrine of the resurrection that verse 4 identifies for us at the center of this passage. So, So resurrection truths on Resurrection Sunday, right? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. So here are six truths regarding the resurrection that this passage teaches us. The first is that the resurrection was planned long before it happened. It's right there in verse 2. The gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel The gospel is the good news that even though mankind has sinned, God loves us so much 
that he sent Jesus to live and die and be raised for us so that we might be saved. Amen? That was planned before Jesus came. That's what this text tells us. And that obviously means, therefore, that the resurrection, which we'll see in just a moment, is central to the gospel, was also, therefore, planned long before it happened. Now, we're not going to take the time, as fun as it would be, to examine a bunch of Old Testament passages that promised and even foreshadow that the Messiah would save his people from their sins. In other words, that gospel message in the Old Testament. But they're there. And the Apostle Paul, who knew the writings of the Old Testament very well, by the way, better than the average bear, states it plainly in verse 2, that the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. The prophets of the Holy Scriptures, which, by the way, this is why on a Bible it says Holy Bible, spoke the promises of God. It says, in the end of verse 1, God, and then at the beginning of verse 2, promised through his prophets. And so what the prophets wrote down were the promises of God. It was God speaking through those prophets. It was God promising grace to undeserving sinners before Jesus came and lived and died and was raised. And so, my friends, we have to see that the resurrection, listen carefully, was not an improvisation. It was not a reaction. It was God raising Jesus from the dead, not as a response to the unjust murder at the hand of the religious leaders conspiring with Rome. The resurrection was the plan all along. And so the first truth regarding the resurrection in this passage is that it was planned long before it happened. The second truth is that the resurrection is central to the gospel message. Now, I can't make that argument from this verse grammatically because the two phrases, the gospel and his resurrection from the dead, are not connected grammatically in these verses. In other words, those clauses aren't like conditional on each other. But, thematically, And theologically, they are inextricably connected. And it's at the center of these verses in which Paul is introducing himself to the Romans as a gospel minister and apostle. And at the center of that is the resurrection. And so what I'm saying is that we can see in these verses that at the center of Paul's life is spreading the gospel... And at the center of Paul's explanation of the gospel is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. So that's why I think I can say that this passage teaches us that the resurrection is at the center of the gospel message. You know, if someone was to come up to you and say, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? You're always talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? What would you say? Undoubtedly, if you are a Christian, you'll say something having to do with the fact that the gospel literally means good news and that it's the good news that Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. And of course, if you say that or something close to it, you're not wrong. But 
you know, if your explanation of the gospel does not include the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, I'm afraid you're missing the most crucial element of the gospel message. Because, friends, without the resurrection, as I said, Good Friday doesn't matter. Jesus is dead and buried and gone. Without the resurrection, Christmas doesn't matter. He's just the tale of a guy who was born in a small town who a lot of religious people look up to. Friends, the resurrection is central to the gospel message. And without it, the gospel message is lacking an essential, central element. Speaking of this, the third truth is that the resurrection was an act of divine spiritual power. Now, in this text, there are two somewhat difficult phrases that we need to take a few minutes to look at. In the middle of verse 4, you see this phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. And that's connected to this idea of Jesus being declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, the spirit of holiness is how it's translated in my English Standard Version, and the Bibles in the backs of our chairs are also in the ESV. What, you're, what you have in front of you this morning might be a slightly different version. You might actually see a translation that says, according to the Holy Spirit. So there's a question about what exactly Paul meant here. Was Paul saying here, as translations who translate it, the Holy Spirit would agree, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. I'm not asking if the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. I'm asking if Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Or is he perhaps saying something about Jesus achieving holiness in order to be raised? What is clear is that what Paul is doing here is contrasting the two natures of Jesus, both his human nature and his divine nature in relation to the two phases, you might say, of his earthly existence. The first phase, of course, being his virgin birth and humanity, and the second phase being his glorified resurrection body and resurrected state. You see both of those here in our passage. You see this phrase, descended from David in verse 3, according to the flesh. Descended from David according to the flesh. That's phase 1. Phase 2, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. So, Jesus' Davidic ancestry and lineage in his humanity... And then the declaration that he is the Son of God in power by this Spirit of Holiness, whatever exactly that means. Now part of what makes that phrase, Spirit of Holiness, difficult to interpret is that this is the only occurrence in all of the New Testament of that exact Greek phrase. So we don't get to just look at the other occurrences of that phrase and say, well, what did it mean there? So this is probably what it means here. And so you've got commentators and pastors and scholars and authors who differ on this. One of my favorite commentators and preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that this cannot mean the Holy Spirit because of that odd Greek that if Paul wanted to say the Holy Spirit, he would have just said the Holy Spirit. That's his opinion. 
Our new friend Andy Nacelli that I mentioned just a moment ago in his new commentary does interpret it to be the Holy Spirit. John Murray, in his classic and acclaimed commentary on Romans, says that it's not the Holy Spirit, but rather a reference to the spiritual power at work in his resurrection as a contrast to the natural flesh or humanity. And then Doug Moo, another great commentator, says that it is the Holy Spirit. A lot of our Bible versions translate the phrase to either imply or even explicitly state, like I said a moment ago, that it's the Holy Spirit. Now, I probably have a slight leaning here, but I'm not going to tell you because it's not that important. Because the point here remains, regardless of exactly which interpretation of this phrase is to be preferred. The point is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a divine act of spiritual power. Whether or not Paul intends specifically to say that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead here, when he uses this phrase, never anywhere else used in the New Testament, whether or not he's saying that, he is clearly saying, making a point about the fact that whereas Jesus' nature was first characterized by the flesh in terms of his human nature, and the weaknesses that are inherent with a human nature, Jesus' resurrection brought about this new characterization characterized by the realm, you could say, of the Spirit. You see what I mean? So, even if it's not, strictly speaking, the Holy Spirit that Paul is referring to, it's certainly at least related to the spiritual realm in divine power that is the current phase, if you might Uh, allow me to use that phrase, of Jesus' existence that he entered into at the resurrection. And that leads to the second of the two interpretative questions that we find in this passage. The first one of what does the spirit of holiness mean? I'm saying it's at least a comparison from Paul about the flesh, this phase of being in human weakness, transitioning to the phase of the divine power at the resurrection. But that second interpretative question is, what does this phrase in power mean? The main question about that phrase in power is whether or not that phrase in power is related to the word declared or if it's related to the phrase son of God. So is it that it was declared in power or is it that he was declared to be the Son of God in power. And in this case, I think it's pretty clearly the latter. The declaration that Jesus is the Son of God was certainly a powerful one, but I think the point that Paul is making is much more significant than how much relative oomph was behind the resurrection saying that Jesus was God's Son. I think Paul's point is, again, connected to the contrast between being born of woman in the flesh, in weakness, And now, at the resurrection, declared to be the Son of God in power. In other words, God's powerful Son. God the Son. No longer under the constraints of human weakness. Now, fully powerful. And thus we come to this central idea of the text and our fourth truth regarding the resurrection, that the resurrection was a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And that is our big point for today. 
The resurrection was a declaration that Jesus Christ is God the Son. Here's the most important thing you need to know about the meaning of this verse. It doesn't mean that at the resurrection, Jesus became the Son of God, as if he wasn't already before. Rather, in the same way that an heir to the throne or an heir to their parents' inheritance is always that heir simply by virtue of who they are, so it is with Christ as it relates to being God's beloved son. Have any of you ever watched the TV show Undercover Boss? It's kind of like that. In Undercover Boss, the boss goes undercover. I know, I know. The boss is the boss in that undercover state, but not everyone realizes that the boss is the boss, that it's him or that it's her. But he or she doesn't stop being the boss just because incognito they take on the position of those who work under them in the company. They're incognito for a time. They are veiled, you might say. And eventually, it is declared, through much drama for the sake of TV ratings, that this was the boss all along. And that is what happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was being acknowledged, recognized, declared to be who he was all along. He came and he was Veiled in flesh, as Hark the Herald Angels Sing says. But not anymore. You know, the Greek word that's translated declared here actually has connotations of drawing property lines. Very interesting. Measuring out what was what, who was where. Proving to anyone who might have questioned it what was reality in relation to questions about property. And that's another illustration of what this declaration means, isn't it? It's proof. It's evidence. It's the drawing of a line. It's forcing a confrontation with reality. And so I can't help but wonder where each of us here this morning stands in relation to that confrontation with the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That Jesus is God Himself. That He is the second person of the three-in-one God. That Jesus is the Lord. That He has been raised from the dead. And that He is powerful, therefore, to save all who come to him in faith. You know, this word power in our text is also a word that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 7, verse 25. It says in Hebrews 7, 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That word able is the same Greek word translated power for us in Romans chapter 1. He is powerful 
to save those who draw near to God through him. And so I ask again, where do you stand as it relates to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? The one declared to be the Son of God in power at his resurrection. The lines have been drawn. Reality has been put on display for everyone to see that there is no excuse for not trusting Christ as Savior. He was raised. Who else has ever been raised? No one. You might go, well, wait a second. What about Lazarus? We talked about him just two weeks ago, or just last week. No, friends, he was not resurrected. He was resuscitated, and then he died again later. Same with Jairus' daughter. Same with anybody else throughout the history of redemption who was miraculously brought back to life in some display of God's power. Only Jesus has been resurrected. He is alive today. He will never die again. And his resurrection was a declaration that he always was, that he is, and that he always will be God's beloved son. And my friend, that means that you can trust him. That means that he can save you. And that shows you that he is powerful to do it and will do it if you ask him to. You know, my friends, I've shared this with many of you before, both in preaching and in private conversations, that this fact, the resurrection, is precisely the hinge on which my own faith turns. There have been multiple instances in my Christian life. I became a Christian as a young boy at five years old. Multiple instances of my Christian life, including my childhood and into my adulthood, and even more recently than I would care to admit to you, where I have questioned whether or not all of this Christianity stuff is real. And you know what seals it for me? The resurrection. Because if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, I've got to do something with that. That means something. I've got to embrace him as my savior. I've got to believe everything that he says because no one else has done that. I've got to follow him with my life. And so my prayer for you today is that if you have never embraced the risen Christ as your savior, that today will be the day that you do. But you know, there's something in that reality of the powerful declaration of Christ as God the Son in this for those of us who already believe too. And so my Christian friend, I ask you, I ask us, if Jesus Christ is really risen, then shouldn't that affect the way that you deal with your daily anxieties? Shouldn't that change the way you look at the world? Doesn't it affect the way we respond to trials? Doesn't it affect the way, shouldn't it affect the way we literally plan our calendars? How engaged we are with Christ's church? How we fill up our lives and what we fill up our lives with? Because friends, if life is really truly all about the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been raised, 
That changes everything. Oh, my friends, the resurrection was and is a declaration that Jesus was and is the Son of God. The fifth truth in this text is related to this. That the resurrection was a precursor to the salvation of the nations. I said a moment ago that only Jesus has ever been resurrected. But do you know what? That will not always be the case. Jesus will not always be the only one who has been resurrected. Because one day, I will be too. And one day, if you're a Christian, you will be too. In fact, this will be the case, Paul says in Romans 1, for, the, for people of all nations. The word here translated nations at the end of verse 5 is the Greek word ethne. It's where we get the idea of ethnicity. And there's a lot more in verse 5, and if I was doing a fuller exposition of Romans, I would take the time to get into it all. It hurts my soul not to, but for today, just note the end of this verse. It's saying that Jesus' resurrection, which is at the heart of the gospel, and which is therefore at the heart of Paul's ministry, leads to the spread of Jesus' name, and the spread, therefore, of the message of salvation to all nations. And that has missional application for us today, doesn't it? Friends, that's exactly why Mark and Rachel Hansen and their kids are in China, where it is not easy to be a Christian and serve Jesus. That's why Jared and Sharon Kessner are in Indonesia. That's why Todd and Carissa Davis and their kids and Ryan and Danielle Fisher and their kids are in France. That's why Brian and Jessica Russell and their kids are in Idaho. And it's why Redeemer Bible Church is in Brighton. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we have good news for sinners. They can be saved through the risen Christ. But it also means something else that's essential to the doctrine of the resurrection. It's why I used the word precursor. Jesus' resurrection was a precursor to the salvation of the nations in its most ultimate sense. Here's what I mean. Jesus' resurrection does not simply provide a get-out-of-jail-free card to anybody who says the magic words. Jesus' resurrection is not an insurance policy to keep you out of the judgment of hell. No, Jesus' resurrection is something far better than that. Jesus' resurrection is a precursor to people from every ethnicity being resurrected too. The Apostle Paul himself talks about this in a different letter from which Redeemer Bible Church elder Paul, not to be confused with Apostle Paul, read just a few minutes ago for us. Our Paul read a short portion of a much larger section in which Apostle Paul wrote, because Jesus has been raised, all who trust in him have the hope of being raised with him. In fact, get this, in verse 4, you see that phrase, by the resurrection from the dead, 
that word, the dead, is plural. In other words, Jesus' resurrection was a precursor for more resurrections to come. And so Jesus' resurrection is a precursor to the salvation of the nations in its most ultimate sense, in the sense of being fully, finally, ultimately saved, resurrected from the dead on the last day to live with God forever. But there's a phrase that comes right before that phrase, among all nations. And that phrase that comes before it is where we get the sixth and final truth about the resurrection in this text before us today. The resurrection is aimed at exalting Jesus. And that's what I want to springboard us out of here with today. That little phrase, for the sake of his name, is a little phrase that packs a huge punch. Paul is saying here that the resurrection of the dead has led him, that is Paul, to spread the fame of Jesus among the nations so that Jesus' name might be glorified. Friends, this is the whole thing. Christian friends, this is literally the point of everything that we do as a church. This is the point of our whole existence as Christians. This is the point of the universe. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is therefore worthy, as we sang, of all glory and honor and blessing. The resurrection was a magnificent revelation of all that Jesus always was and all that he always will be. He always was, he is, and he always will be the beloved Son of God, the divine Son of Man, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lion of Judah, the bearer of sins, the firstfruits from the dead, the great high priest who intercedes for his people, the mighty Savior, the good shepherd of his sheep, God with us, the beginning and the end, the source and purpose and goal of all creation, the risen King, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is who our risen Christ always has been, that is who he is today, and that is who he always will be. And so, if the resurrection is aimed at exalting Jesus, and we are people who believe in the resurrected Christ, then we must ask ourselves, how do we partake in the exaltation of this glorious risen Christ? And I would suggest two ways to you. One of them is outward, and one of them is inward. Outwardly, you do this by spreading the word by spreading his fame. You literally tell your neighbors about him. You tell your coworkers about him. You teach your children about him. You go to another city and help start a church there so you can tell them about him. You move to another state or country so you can tell them about him. You literally spread the word about him. Inwardly, here's how you exalt Jesus. You regard him, or you view him, you think of him, you act as if, truly, when no one else is watching, that he is your supreme 
source of joy, of peace, of hope. That even when the trials come, even when the anxiety is pulsing through your body, even when things are driving you nuts at work, even when problems occur at your church, Jesus is your highest treasure. And he is your everything. And he is exalted. So take that question with you. How can I partake in the exaltation of this glorious Christ? Take it with you. Let it rumble around in your mind and heart this afternoon as you eat, tonight as you lay your head on your pillow. How can I, how can we as a church, how can we in our families, how can I as individuals cultivate a life that values, that treasures, that exalts the risen Christ more than anything, more than anyone else? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so we say at Easter and at Christmas and every day, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Life and light to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Glory to our King. Let's pray. Praise be to you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your mercy, you have given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and an inheritance that will never perish. We rejoice that this inheritance is kept in heaven for us and that Through faith, we are being protected by your power until our coming final resurrection and salvation on the last day. In all this, we greatly rejoice. Jesus, because of your resurrection, we are neither afraid to die, nor are we afraid to live. We are not purposeless, anxious, fearful wanderers in this life. We are the hope-filled children of God. We are not enslaved to sin. We are wrapped in your righteousness. Because of your resurrection, we are less to be pitied and more to be grateful than everybody and anybody. You are the first fruits, Jesus, of a whole new world order. You are the new creation, life of redemption and restoration, and everything sad will come untrue, all things broken made new one day because of your resurrection. Jesus, you are already reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. All evil dominions and authorities and powers have been defeated, and one day they will be totally eliminated. Jesus, your death was the death of death, and your resurrection is where the resurrection of all things will come from. You died for our sins, and you have been raised. And in light of this hope, this grace, and this coming inheritance, we ask that you would free us to spend the rest of our days living and loving to your glory. We pray, Jesus, in your resurrected and reigning name. Amen. Let's stand together.